Hello and welcome to Kiwi Rider Podcast. My name's Ray Heron. Great to have you along. If this is the first podcast you've listened to of ours, please do hit that subscribe button and leave some feedback. We'd love you for that. Uh, later on in the podcast, we're going to be catching up with the one and only Peter Elliott with a story that he wrote for Kiwi Rider magazine, which he has voiced for us, uh, called Pete's People. More about that later. This episode right now, we've got... Uh, Jock McLaughlin's thoughts on the Triumph Speed Triple 1200 RS and 1200 RR. What's in a single letter of a bike's designation? Really, quite a lot as we found out with the new model Speed Triple RR and RS models. Uh, More on the story and photos, you can go to kiwirider.co.nz and check out uh, March Volume 1 of 2023. It was a rare and beautiful thing. Two Triumph 1200 speed triples side by side in my shed. One a black Street Fighter RS and the other a Cafe Racer styled RR. They're the same, right? Just a fairing and some clip-ons. Well yes, in large part they are very similar machines, yet they are also distinctly different. All things are subjective and all riders are individuals who come in different sizes, with different expectations. Triumph is acknowledging that with these machines. One potential owner might buy for a practical use and comfort, another simply because they look cool and to hell with comfort, it makes them feel good. Another might want a little of both, just like fashion. Some are prepared to suffer for their style and desires, while some are not. So let's see what they're all about. What's shared? Starting with the similarities, the double overhead cam, liquid-cooled, three-cylinder engine is new. It's up 29 horsepower on the previous lump, now peaking at a whopping 177 horsepower at 10,750 RPM, while torque has jumped slightly to 125 newton meters at 9,000 RPM. Overall bike weight is down to 10 kgs, and both bikes now slide in just under the 200kg mark. The RR is 199kgs and the RS is 198kgs wet. They have 6-speed gearboxes which are particularly sweet shifting via a slick quick shifter. Both carry 16 litres of fuel, which is not quite enough in our books, but okay. The power delivery is excellent from the Triumph triple motor, truly awesome. Smooth, responsive and excellent torque. The 1160cc engine is playful, intuitive and bloody quick. Also, it's very manageable, instilling ease of use and confidence in all levels of rider. It is a gem. The power delivery is such that within 100 metres of jumping on the back of the black RS, the front wheel was lofting. All felt perfectly normal, as if I'd been riding it all my life. The loft felt non-threatening and just right. Gosh, I didn't even know what mode the RS was in at that point. It sure felt great. Later on, I found the modes are rain, road, sport, track, and rider configuration. The mode selection is via a bar-mounted button and joystick, all displayed on the 5-inch TFT colour screen. Cruise control is also a feature. I spent most of my time in sport mode and was totally happy with it for road work. Not many engines match big power with such intuitive ease of use. And if it's your first time on a powerful bike, just select rain mode until you feel comfortable fraternising with the 177 ponies. 
maintenance shouldn't be too pricey either, with a decent 16,000km service interval. Of course, all the usual electronic safety aids are in full force to manage overt rider exuberance. Both lean angle ABS and traction control that is adjustable for intervention levels should allow enough options for the majority of riders. Both bikes sport very nice looking single-sided swing arms and superb twin 320mm Stylema Brembo brakes up front and are adjustable for both span and ratio strength. The ratio is adjusted from 19 to 21, which relates to the position and bore size of the master cylinder and is an indication of braking force. As delivered, they were both set at 19, which offers excellent feel, more than enough stopping power and was ideal for general road use. Flick the adjuster up to 21 and the braking force jumps significantly. For example, on a nice grippy surface at 90km an hour, a firm pull on the lever resulted in the ABS intervening. The tyre was locking up and stopping feel was intense. This setting is probably best reserved for track, but no doubt if you want ultra-powerful brakes, 21 is the setting for you. I would stick with 19 for most riding, but the upshot is these top-of-the-range stoppers are bloody awesome. Olin's USD forks and shocks come on both bikes. The shocks are mounted on a single-sided swing arm via a rising rate linkage, but this is where things start to become different, apart from the styling of course. The black RS has a conventional shock and fork, while the white RR has electronically managed semi-active Olin smart components. I was very impressed with the suspension action on the RR. It was plush and refined in feel, and yet firm enough for a spirited riding. The RR remains taut and always composed with nice forgiving feedback. Excellent. However, out where I live in the boonies, the roads are rough with all manner of irregularities and on these surfaces I found the suspension to be on the firm side, but hardly unexpected from a bike that's designed with such sporty intentions. This is where the RS with the non-electronic fully adjustable suspension was a little plusher and more comfortable. There was not all that much in it, but for riders who enjoy our remote blacktop, which equals worse road conditions, the RS could be the better option. And that is all without mentioning ergonomics. In short, the RS is a hell of a lot more comfortable and commanding for poor roads than the RR, especially if you're tall. The details are, on the white RR, the clip-on bars are 135mm lower and 50mm further forward and the pegs are 15mm higher and 25mm further back. Also, the bars feel narrower and angled back somewhat, while the RS has straighter, wider and higher bars. It's a sport riding position. This means that taller riders, and I'm over 6 foot, feel noticeably more cramped, with much greater weight on the wrists on the white RR, while the black RS feels more comfortable, accommodating, and certainly, for me at least, more commanding, with the higher, straighter bars. Obviously, this all becomes less relevant for non-giraffe-like riders, and shorter riders should be happiness-filled on the cafe-style RR. Weather protection-wise, both machines are similar, and not great. While the RR does have a screen, it's very low and quite narrow, so, in effect, you get wet easily on both bikes in rain, while wind protection is slightly better on the RR, but you need to be short or bent quite low to get much benefit from the screen. Again, not unexpected for the style of the bike. 
I guess it would be a benefit at track days. And speaking of track days, the track-specific power modes and suspension settings should excite track day warriors and racers alike. Straight up, both the RS and RR are awesome bikes, and, for their intended use, are fabulous. Both sport handling that is nimble and light, and yet they remain very planted on the road. The ergonomics on the RR create a slightly less nimble but more planted feel, due in part to the extra body weight on the nose and the riding position, while the RS is easier to muscle around because you sit more upright. Wind is more of an issue. Personally, I'm too tall to enjoy all-day comfort on either bike, but the RS is better for me in the comfort department. If you're looking for a machine with fantastic brakes, an awesome engine and top-shelf suspension that looks cool with beautiful build quality, then the RS is for you. And if you prefer the racier style and possibly want to include some track work and aren't all too tall, the RR becomes the more obvious choice. It's the classic choice, horses for courses. Either way, I'm sure you won't be disappointed. For more information, photos and all the specs on these two fantastic motorcycles, go to kiwirider.co.nz and check out March edition 1 from 2023. It's the one with the two sexy triumphs on the cover. Time now to catch up with one Peter Elliott for Pete's People. Alan Boyle, the oldest teenager in town, has told to me Peter Elliott. I'm not Alan, although I talk in his voice. I was born during the Second World War in 1942. My father was an engineer and mechanic who ran his own garage, so I was in the grease from crawling age. In those days after the war, everything was scarce and rationed and times were tough. Many ex-army Indian motorcycles were being sold at the time for a few pounds each, and even though I was too young, I lusted after owning one. And while I may have grown up amongst cars serviced by my dad and my wonderful elder brother, I was always completely fascinated by motorcycles. I'd ride my pushbike to scramble events, filled with longing for those sterling British beasts, AJSs, BSAs, Triumphs, Nortons, James, and Dot two-strokes. Still, my parents were not impressed when I came home with my first motorcycle at just 16. It was 1958, and I was in my first year of work, being paid the equivalent of $8.50 per week but the only way to fulfil my dreams was to save as much as I could. So I went without things like hamburgers and cokes and saved religiously for 10 months and finally managed to purchase a used BSA 250C11G for £65, about 130 bucks of today's money. I repaired and serviced it myself at my family's auto repair shop, proudly emblazoned, WM Boyle Motor Engineer out front. It was originally sited opposite 277 and Broadway in Newmarket, Auckland, but in the Depression years, the family operated from our home. I'd learned to ride on mates' bikes, CZ Jawas and BSA Bantams, great bikes of the day. But even before that, and long before the advent of BMX bikes, we made what we called stock bikes. These we cobbled together from bicycles dumped in roadside rubbish collections. We'd strip them down, rebuild them, and then race them on a dirt track which we me and some mates dug out by hand on One Tree Hill. By 1959, I joined the Auckland Motorcycle Club, and in that same year I entered the John Bull 24-hour motorcycle trial. This took us out of town and all through the Coromandel Ranges before returning to Auckland. In these times, New Zealand was a different place. 
Everything closed down on Friday night, even the pubs closed at six, and didn't reopen again till Monday morning. The only exceptions were a few strategic petrol stations and the odd corner dairy. Supermarkets and the like simply didn't exist. So full pockets and your riding jacket was standard. The roads around Coromandel were all gravel, rough and rugged, awful actually, and some were just two-wheeled ruts with grass in the centre. Whatever we were going to need on that John Bull tour, we had to carry with us. I made a map board, which I fitted onto the tank with a light attached, and I carried tools, a spare tube, a tyre pump, a patching kit, and spare petrol. Fuel stops were pre-arranged for nighttime supplies, and at midnight, the Coromandel Hotel opened up especially for us, and provided a very welcome roast meal for the large group of riders. Having ridden for 15 hours, I crawled under a table and had 40 winks. Then at 1am, we were riding again through to the wee small hours. Around 3am, one of the guys going flat out up a gravel hill hit a wild pig. His bike stopped instantly. He didn't. It took me some time to find him, unconscious in the tea tree bushes. He recovered well and actually went on to become a pretty famous Kiwi rider of the day. Captain Neil Mackay was riding his Triumph Twin Sprung Hub on badly undulating tar-sealed road on the Hauraki Plains when he was killed after the bike went into a tank slapper and he was pitched off. Sprung hubs were notorious for giving dangerous trouble at speed, and his helmet was made of aluminium and was the dome style of the day with no protection of the temple or the face, and that may have been a contributor to the fatality. I arrived on the scene riding with his brother, noticed the black marks on the road, and, and we found him. Deceased. Very sobering indeed. The event was called off after that, but I well remember the valve-bouncing ride back to town to inform his unfortunate family there were no phones anywhere in those days. And this sad event served to teach me to have some respect for my machine, and made me fully aware of how vulnerable motorcyclists can be, lessons I carry to this day. Later, my absolute pride and joy was my 1955 BSA Twin A7, with a duplex tubular frame, swinging arm rear and telescopic forks. It was a truly lovely bike to ride. I fancied myself as a bit of James Dean. This was the model of bike which won the international six days trial in Europe for all makes of motorcycle, and had achieved this same feat for a number of years. It was a top machine in the 1950s era, and rare as hell to find during those austere times here in New Zealand. My own A7 had been ridden from the UK to Australia and on to New Zealand by its first migrant owner, who sold it to me. Later I did a complete engine rebuild until it was perfectly mint. In fact it was so good that the cops who pulled me over often let me off after examining the machine in some detail. The milk bar cowboys also often stopped me just to have a listen to the sound of the engine. In 1962 I got my first car but I kept the A7 for commuting to work and over the next 10 years I became involved in New Zealand saloon car racing. And my former experience on bikes meant I was able to transition faster into racing cars. I began with a succession of Mini Coopers and Cooper S models. The first called Tomato was a 997 Cooper Mark I, followed by Violet, a 1964-970cc Cooper S, which I purchased in 1966. The third was known as the Coke Mini. It was very fast, and it was developed and built at home from a base vehicle of an insurance write-off. And with sponsors Coca-Cola on board, we raced at every circuit in New Zealand for 20 races each season. We led the championship often, but ended runner-up twice and third once, in three completed seasons. 
1970, we built and raced a fuel-injected Viva GT to great success over four seasons, but I've always retained my passion for motorcycles. Of course, the inevitable pressures of work, home life, marriage and kids meant that racing eventually had to pass. I had to hang up my hat completely and go cold turkey because it was so painful to give up, and it was years before I ventured to a race meeting of any sort after that. Of course, I rode a fair bit with off-road bikes on the bombing range and forest areas north of Auckland. And of course, in those days, we had the place pretty much to ourselves. If you can roar through a bit of virgin forest on a racing dirt bike, I can tell you it's pretty neat. To me, riding is the next best thing to flying. See, required for picking a line, the judgment of speed, gear selection and throttle control, with the added bonus of fresh air, the aromas of the countryside or the smell of bitumen, and it all serves to quicken the heart. I absolutely love it. Fantastic. So, I've been a motorcycle enthusiast for over 70 years, and after some personal losses and the inevitable tragedies of life, I returned to motorcycling as a way to keep myself active and alert. I turned my life around, really. I'd lost the riding companions of the day, and I asked if I could tag along with a group of likely-looking riders parked on the side of the road. The Every Sunday Riding Group were open-armed, but added that I was welcome to ride with them, but that I was to ride my own ride and not to try and keep up if I was at all uncomfortable. At this stage, they were mostly on 1,200cc machines, while I was on my trusty 1987 Honda GB500, complete with a sheepskin seat. I've always been a skinny bugger, and that sheepskin is an arse saver, but it may have given the impression that I was something of a nana. I think they were a bit surprised that I was more than up to the task. Since then, that group of riders have become my friends and companions and they've been extremely important to me personally, respecting my wishes but also letting me know if they felt I was out of touch socially. And I have to say that they've become a mainstay of my life and well-being through their genuine caring and compassion for one and another. These individuals, clad in leather, may be misjudged by some in society, but they come from all walks of life and backgrounds and varied occupations. And they're a great group of men and women who really care for each other and no one gets left behind. They are family to me. These last couple of years, I've mostly ridden a very capable Yamaha Tracer GT900, and I've toured both islands on it as well, meeting and riding with the sons and others throughout the length of the country. We are beyond fortunate to live in paradise here, and even at 80 years of age, by far the best way to see it, to experience its beauty, and to be in it, is on two wheels, flying in the company of firm friends. And that pretty much wraps us up. This is Keep Me Rider Podcast. My name's Ray here, and thank you so much for listening. Hit that subscribe button, share this podcast with a riding buddy of yours, and check out MotoNZ.com. Or you can go to YouTube and, ch- and search MotoNZ, check out all the latest videos. While you're online, though, you can check out KiwiRider.co.nz and check out all the back catalogue, all the episodes of Kiwi Rider magazine. It's all up there and absolutely free for you to enjoy. There is an absolute truckload of motorcycling content up there. This is Kiwi Rider Podcast. My name is Ray here, and thank you so much for listening. Keep the rubber side down, throttle on, and we'll catch you in seven days' time. <laughs>